Good morning, everyone. Junior Church, you are dismissed to walk. Make sure you're bundled because it's kind of chilly up there. As I was preparing the sermon a couple weeks ago, um, how many of you have ever seen a pyrotechnic display, like at a concert or something? I see that. Okay, I like that. And then this morning, as I was coming in here, I thought maybe we should have pyrotechnics to kind of warm up the place for everybody. But it's hot in here already. Okay, so um, pyrotechnics, I'm a, I like fire. I like to, not all the kids are gone, hold on. So um, I like to build model cars when I was little, um, paper airplanes and all that stuff, and I learned pretty early, you can mix fireworks and model cars. And it was pretty fun seeing the car drive down the driveway before it explodes. Fire can be really cool. It can grab people's attention. When there's ever people camping, where do all the guys want to go? To the fire. They want to get it hot. They want to see how big they can get the flames. Flames shoot out, and they love all this stuff. Flames can illuminate the whole area, especially if it's like a concert, and they're shooting out behind and and above everybody. And I've been at one where you can feel the heat from the stage when those pyrotechnics go off. Why do musicians use pyrotechnics? It's cool. That's my boy. Why else do they do it? Get your attention. It doesn't help the music, does it? It helps your mood, but it doesn't play the right note. It doesn't play an instrument. Isn't the music enough for the fans? You'd think it would be. These performers are looking for something more, trying to catch the attention of the audience, something that people will always remember later on. A couple weeks ago, we began um, our study into our crawl through um, Acts, and we saw a pyrotechnic display in the beginning of chapter 2. I'll read the first four verses. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in a place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the whole place where they were sitting. Then, look, then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, can you imagine what it had been like to be in that church service? I mean, you're sitting there. Can you imagine the sound of that mighty roaring wind that would come in and fill the place and, and shake the place? And then you see these flames start settling down on each person, and it's right above your head. And with some of you, the way you have some product in there, that's a, that's a fire hazard. And then... All those people started praising God in different languages, something he'd never learned. After we looked at that pyrotechnic display a couple weeks ago, the next couple verses tell us they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from everywhere. And when they heard this sound, they came rushing Not only do we hear the wind and see the flames, now those people come and they hear the spoken language, but they understand these Commoners are speaking multitudes of languages. They're being understood by all these thousands of people in their own language. That is very wild. That is a 
display. We stopped at verse 12. But look at what happened in verse 13. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk. That's all. Okay, I have watched. I have never been drunk in my life. Never wanted to. I've seen people be that way. I don't want that. That does not look fun. I've seen plenty of people who are. Now, never in my mind have I seen somebody drunk that they were able to do smarter things. Isn't that the opposite? We end up doing dumber things if you're that way. Here, oh, they're just drunk. That's why they're able to speak in all these different languages and we all understand them. People are trying to accuse them of something brilliant. But why would God do it this way? Why would God do this pyrotechnic display, have all these languages spoken? I I believe God wanted something that would catch the attention of the crowd. He wanted something they'd remember for a really long time. Uh, In fact, God was so intent on this particular event, he even prophesied about it. 800 years before in the prophet Joel. Read into that. 800 years prior, God talked through Joel about this event. Peter calls out this false accusation. Let's pick up in verse 14. Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about it. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. This was before that song. It's five o'clock somewhere. Okay? So they knew back then it, the bars aren't even open. It didn't happen. No, what you're seeing, what you see is predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will see dreams. In those days... I will pour out my spirit on even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are some people that get all tied up with the pyrotechnics of this event. They get all excited about the attention getters, the rushing wind, the the flames, and the speaking of different languages, and they fail to understand that that wind, the fire, the tongues, none of that was the main show. That all was attention grabbers to get them there for the real thing. It's all window dressing for the main message that God wanted to get to them that day. When Peter the one who failed Jesus, the one who stumbles in his faith a lot. When he stands up in true faith, in boldness, he speaks the gospel. This is more astonishing than the wind, the fire, and the languages. This ordinary fisherman who is now addressing thousands, standing bold in front of all of them, proclaiming the gospel. He is giving the first recorded sermon. Peter preached a very powerful message. Let's look at that. Verse 22. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles and wonders in science through him. As you well know, 
Notice, you know this. He's associating them into the sermon. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in his grip. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me, I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises, my body rests in hope. For you not only leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave, you have shown me that the way of life, that, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Peter goes on after quoting David there, Dear brothers, think about this, you can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to to himself, for he was, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he, meaning Jesus, is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the, and the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us just as you see it here today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at, the, at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. This is a phenomenal sermon, and if we really broke it down, we could make five different sermons today on just this few passages. I'm going to give you four main components, though. There are lots of components in this, but four main components to this sermon. First, God sent Jesus to mankind. Peter said this, verse 22. Not only is he saying that God sent Jesus, but then the second verse is just as bold. Verse 23, with the help of lawless Gentiles, you crucified him. So the second one, they killed the promised one. But he said, you, along with those you despise, you are just as lawless as the Gentiles. Peter's saying these Jews are in leagues, in league with the Gentiles. How would you feel if I came up to you and said, you along with, and then I put in a group that you just could not stand. Along with them performed a devastating evil act. It would kind of get you up in arms, and that's what happened here. These two statements, God sent Jesus and you killed him with the Gentiles, grab more attention than the rushing wind, and yet Peter doesn't stop. He goes to the third component, verse 24, but God released him from the horrors of death, raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Peter says, God sent Jesus, you killed Jesus, but God raised Jesus from the dead. God sent him, you killed him, God raised him. And then to top all of that, the fourth component that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. Throughout all of this sermon, Peter quotes prophecies of the Old Testament to prove his point. 
And he could have been up there all day because there are 300 known prophecies about Jesus. And I'm not talking about the imagery ones. I'm talking about the direct ones. So he could have been up there a long time. Nothing like this style of preaching has ever been done before in the history of mankind up to this point. This was very wild and bold style of preaching. Nothing like it had been declared before. A lot of times in churches, in their temples at that time, they would just spout theology. Here are things that it is said. Here is what is in there. Now go do them to the best of your ability. Instead, this is coming in saying, you killed the Messiah. This is a declaration that God has done something different. God has stepped down out of heaven. He stripped himself of his deity. He allowed himself to die on the cross. This is, uh, there is part of this sermon that didn't sit well with the listeners. And this statement, this belief still hits people today. Verse 36. So let, ev- ev- so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this, Jew- this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. You killed him, and yet he's Lord, authority, Messiah, Savior. We're going to see this message repeated time and time again, not just through Peter, but also through Paul. Many other people who have preached the gospel. Jesus died, and you put him there. It's your fault that Jesus went to the grave. It's your fault that Jesus was crucified. This is what Peter is saying. And this is the message that people today still don't like. It's not my fault. I didn't nail him. I didn't whip him. But here's what the gospel message truly is. You and I are sinners. We deserve hell. But Jesus died in our place. He died because of my sin, because of your sins. Our sins put him on the cross. And until you come to realize that your sins sent Jesus to the cross, you truly don't believe you need a Savior because you think you're good enough to do it on your own. Jesus is the only one who could pay the price and still beat death. We can't. This message, this gospel message, is incredibly offensive. It is saying all of us are evil. The gospel message says all of you and me are sinners. All of us deserve death. I'm a nice person. I don't honk my horn when somebody's not going as soon as it turns green. I make sure I have 17 items or less. I'm a nice person. I sin. And therefore, I deserve death. I deserve hell. There's no one in this room who can get to heaven on their own. No matter how good of a person you think you are, your sins sent Jesus to the cross. Famous singer Billy Joel. How many of you like his music? Yeah. Some of you are like, I don't know who that is. Billy Joel got upset and he said, There's a guy nailed to the cross and dripping blood, and everyone's blaming themselves for this man's torment. But I said to myself, Forget it. I had no hand in that evil. 
I have no original sin. There's no blood of any sacred martyr on my hands. I pass on all of this. That's what he's doing. That's what he's saying. Well, Gojo can't do that. He can't pass on this. He is just as sinful as every single one of us. His sins did put Jesus on the cross, just like yours did, like mine did. The idea of being called a sinner angered and annoys him. He didn't like being talked to that way because he's too important and he's too nice and good of a person to be talked to that way. When did Peter preach this sermon? If you remember a couple weeks ago, what is the event that this happened on? Pentecost, right. Uh, Pentecost, meaning 50th, Penta. Um, It's a special day observed by the Jews 50 days after Passover. This specific Pentecost is the last one ever mentioned in Scripture. I thought, well, that's odd. Why is this the last one? And if it's in here, if it's stated, it's got to be for a purpose. So hold on to that nugget. It's the last one. I wonder why. Let's go to verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each one of you must repent of your sins and turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises to you and to your children and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. Let's stop right there. I like that verse. Any of you say we need short sermons? He's continued preaching for a long time. Do you know why we have such nice padded chairs? Because I preach long, so let's move on. Okay. Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. How many people responded to Peter's sermon? We just read 3,000. This is the last Pentecost ever recorded in Scripture. And if there's the last Pentecost, that must mean there's a first one, right? So I, I started looking. What is the first Pentecost? It would have been 50 days after Passover. And as I was looking into this, I started getting giddy. I was like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. When did Israel first celebrate Passover feast? In Egypt, before they left their slavery. If Israel was leaving Egypt the day after they celebrated that first Passover, where do you think they were 50 days later? Mount Sinai, receiving the word of the Lord. Okay, the Ten Commandments. When they arrived at that mountain, um, Moses went up to the Ten, got the Ten Commandments. When he came down, 50 days after just being released from Egypt, 50 days after seeing all the Ten Plagues and how God saved them, 50 days after all that, they come to this mountain, they see and hear the thundering rumbles that God is up there. Moses comes down and he discovers Israel has made a golden calf. They were just seeing the witnesses and the power of the true God, and they decided to worship a baby cow made out of gold. They were worshiping, and this, this is truly offensive, not to us, but it was to God. 
Moses then breaks the Ten Commandments, storms the camp, seizes the golden calf, grinds it in the powder, puts it in the drinking supply, and commands the people to drink from it. Now, the Bible doesn't say it directly, but this whole story seems to indicate that there were a certain number of people who rebelled against it. They didn't like this idea that Moses was doing, and I really get the impression they told him, I'm not drinking that water. You can't force me to do that. Because why else would these next verses be there? Starting in Exodus chapter 32, verse 26. So he, Moses, stood at the entrance of the camp and shouted, All of you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And all the Levites gathered around him. The Levites, the, the priests. Moses told them, This is what the Lord your God of Israel says. Each of you take your swords, go back and forth like this. From one end of the camp to the other, kill everyone, even your brothers, your friends, and neighbors. The Levites obeyed Moses' command, and about 3,000 people that died that day. How many people died on the first Pentecost? How many people were saved at the last Pentecost? Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't that just really good coincidence? I don't think that's a coincidence. I think God left that for us so that we could see and marvel at the intricacy of his word. 3,000 people died because they refused to repent. They refused to submit to God's word. And here in Acts, the last scriptural mention of Pentecost, about 3,000 were saved because they chose to repent and submit. Right there, if you need to know that God is not perfect in his word and saying, hey, I'm going to be fair if you choose to reject me, fine, this is what you deserve. But if you choose to come to me, this is what I give you. Right there, it bookends this whole thing perfectly. But wait, I feel like a tele, um, whatever they call the people on TV, but wait, there's more. Not only was this message wild and the results were wild, But there is an invitation. This never happened. Before this time, there was never really an invitation time. We're coming to this. Every Sunday, the preacher, when he's done, he signifies by coming down, and people can get up and either come forward or kneel and pray, and we know it's over. The invitation time. This is a brand new thing. There was an offer made at the end of the message that was unlike what anybody had heard before. Think about it for a moment. You're in the crowd that morning. You know, um, and you know you were also in the crowd weeks before, crying, crucify. You were there. If they were there that morning for Peter's sermon, they were most likely there crying out, crucify. Weeks have separated it, but they're the same people. You were there when the Pharisees and chief priests whipped the crowd into a frenzy, and your voice joined the others, looking at this guy that you didn't really know, but you said, yeah, crucify him, I want the event. Crucify him, this is going to be fun. And you said it over and over again, and now you find out you did. Ask, beg, and celebrate the death of the Messiah, the Son of God. How do you think the people would have felt when they realized they just did it? How do you feel knowing if you were there and that really your sins now? You killed the Son of God. What would you think God would do? I, I can tell you. 
Okay, um, if somebody hurts my kids, not going to be nice. I just don't know how to say it. You, you, you just don't do that. And God, I mean, really think if somebody not just hurt your child, but purposely went and killed your child, are you going to go invite them to Donut Sunday? You're not going to be joyful and happy about it. What would you want done to those individuals who helped partake of that event and celebrated it? These people deserve to die. A God, the Holy One, the Justice, He knew this. He knew what they deserved. And in holy fear, this crowd says, what do we do? I did it. I sinned. I asked for Jesus to die. What should we do? And Peter's reply is just as wild and simple. It's very direct. And it is so under the radar that people still don't like it. They think there's got to be more. Acts 2.37, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, Brother, what should we do? And really, the Greek in there, what should we do to be saved? That is what that phrase should really mean. What do we do to get away from this death? And Peter replied, each of you, not one for a bunch of you, each person must repent of your sins, turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. What do you need to do to be saved? He just said it. People have been asking what they must do to be saved. It's not my answer. It's God's answer right there. It isn't about how much you put in the offering plate. It isn't about how many times you come to a church service. Peter tells the people right here, this is what you do to be saved. What do we need to do? First, repent. Big churchy word. What's it mean? Admit I'm a sinner and determine to change from that. I am a sinner and I don't want to be anymore. I want to reject sinning and turn. That's what um, repent is. Secondly, Peter says, turn to God. Turn your life, your thoughts, your actions. This is submit. And then be baptized. Allow yourself to be um, buried in a watery grave. These are Peter's words here about how to be saved. Jesus' death on the cross was not just their fault. It's ours. And it was part of God's plan. Your sins, my sins, are the reason Jesus was nailed to the cross. But it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for God's plan, his purpose, for Jesus to go there. The idea that God would so freely forgive us is hard for many people to understand. I was talking with some people once when I worked third shift at Walmart, and we were talking about some of these topics, and, and I mentioned how Jeffrey Dahmer had started going to Bible studies in prison, and he was actually baptized. A preacher went in there and baptized him and before he was killed. And this lady says, that's not the kind of God I want to serve, somebody who would accept him. Really? You don't want a God who's going to accept a horrible sinner who turns his life and says, God, I'm sorry, forgive me, take me. Because if he can take Jeffrey Dahmer, we all have a good chance. 
And, and this lady didn't like that idea because she was elevating herself based on her marriage, based on her works, based on how good she was because she doesn't need Jesus. That's really what she was saying. But once people are confronted with the bloodstained Savior, which this lady did not want to look at, once you're fully confronted with the bloodstained Savior, it will change your life. Peter, the man who doubted Jesus, and really when you look at it, he called Jesus a liar. You're going to deny me. No, I'm not. You're wrong. Really? Peter, the man who rejected Jesus, was confronted with the bloodstained Savior. Because of that, he's right here telling thousands of people about the transformational power of Jesus. Peter's sins were on Jesus at the cross. He knew it. My sins were on Jesus at the cross. Your sins. Your sins are what drove Jesus to the cross. You may be a sinner of great proportion. You may be a sinner of just a few. It doesn't matter. We are equal. We are sinners. And God died for you. Jesus died for you even though you do not. You and I do not deserve forgiveness. Really, I think this is something that's missing in our culture. You and I do not deserve forgiveness. There is nothing you and I can do to earn forgiveness for killing the Savior. (laughs) Nothing can do it. Forgiveness has to be a gift. And that's what God gives us. Jesus died for you to prove how much he loves you. But you can't go on not responding to God's love. You can't go on not accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior if you want salvation. If you don't respond to God's love, you will never receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's what it is. You have to respond to him. It's not that you earn it by repenting and are baptized. You are submitting to his plan. That's what the verses say here. That's what these verses, you will never be inspired to let the old sinner die. I'll just tell you that. You'll never be inspired to allow the the new man or woman to spring forth within you. You'll never be empowered to share the gospel of Jesus Christ if you never respond to God and are filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll never be inspired to lovingly allow God to use you as an instrument to help save others from hell. You will never be a part of God's church. You will never make it through the valleys to the mountaintops. You will never make it to heaven. You will never make it until you repent. You turn to God. You're baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the church is to share the love that God has highlighted by sacrificing himself, his death on the cross. He offered forgiveness, not because you're good, but because you're not. He says, I know you can't make it to heaven. Let me make it for you. The purpose of the church is to give honor to God's power to Overcome all of death, overcome all of sin, and still pour that onto us so that we can walk into heaven. Peter made a very bold statement. You killed Jesus. Peter made incredibly bold statements. You killed him. 
God saved him. He brought him back up, and he is seated on the throne with full power and authority. And yet he is reaching out, saying, just come to me, and I will save you too. I've never done that. I don't do invitations like many people are used to for the last 50-some years. I don't every Sunday ask if you want to be baptized, come forward. If ever you need something, please come forward. Because sometimes we're a little callous to it. It's normal, so we don't pay attention. After hearing Peter's sermon, if you've never responded to it, why wait? My sins put Jesus on the cross, and I want to do anything I can to get rid of them. I can't. Neither can you. But God took them away. He put them on the cross. He let them die with his son. And then because his son was perfect, he raised him up. And he gives me that life. He took away my sins, and he gave me the life of Christ. He took away the sin, the stain, the gross disease of sin out of me. And he filled me with the Holy Spirit. And he wants to do it with every single one of us. If you've never done that, you've never said, I, I'm tired of living it on my own. I'm tired of trying to lift it and do it all on my own. I need God. You make today that day. Make today the day where you start a new journey of not living on your own, but living under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. Because if he can use Peter, imagine how much he can use you. If he can save Jeffrey Dahmer, if he can save you. If he can take some little skinny boy from a trailer trash in Wabatucky, Wabash, Indiana, and bring him to be minister here. Imagine how much more he can do in you. I believe it. I see it. We do it today. Let's stand and let's worship the God who saved. It's the one who brought Jesus out of the grave, brought him to heaven. Let us lift up our voice. And if you need to make that decision today, will you come see me or one of the others?